Hey, I'm John Harwood, your host for CNBC's Speakeasy podcast. In this episode, a conversation with the unlikeliest Democratic contender for 2020, Pete Buttigieg, just 37 years old, but already the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, a former McKinsey management consultant, and a naval intelligence veteran of the Afghanistan war. We sat down at a veteran service center in Las Vegas to discuss a range of issues, from the economy to his approach as the first openly gay presidential candidate in American history. I started by asking if high-level vacancies in the Trump administration have created a crisis. I think the government's been in some kind of crisis ever since this president arrived. Uh, not just when you have a vacancy, but frankly, sometimes when you have an appointee who is hostile to the mission of the agency that, that she or she, he is heading up. Uh, in the case of DHS, it's a little bit different. Many of the concerns around DHS are not so much about the personnel, but about the policies. Uh, and uh, when you talk about family separation or just the unpreparedness for some of the issues at the border, that's a concern. But one thing we are seeing more and more is Americans need our government to work. We can have an argument over how big it ought to be or how small it ought to be, what functions it ought to take on. But fundamentally, uh, I mean, I'd be run out of town on a rail if I couldn't run a government. And what we're seeing in Washington, it's hard to sink a ship, but they seem to be doing their best. Uh, and these vacancies are going to be more and more of a problem. So I think for those of us who are opposed to this administration's policies, it's kind of a choose your poison thing. I don't know what's worse, uh, them being well-staffed and uh, pursuing policies that are destructive, or them being hamstrung by the ability to do much of, at all, because there are so many key positions that are vacant. What's right about American capitalism? Well, you know, American capitalism is one of the most productive forces ever known to man. There's so much that, that this country has been able to unlock, especially in the last century, in terms of technology, in terms of prosperity. Uh, now, where it goes wrong is when it's only being experienced in certain parts of the country or by certain kinds of people. Um, and I think it goes to show just how important for capitalism to work, that it be backed by all of the other pieces that business alone can't solve. Um, but when it's working right, there's nothing like it. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, you think about the, the changes that have happened, the advancements in, in health, in communications, um, in every field that have been led by our country. What frightens me is it's no longer obvious that our country will lead the most important advancements of humankind in the 21st century, not unless we do some things differently. Is that because you think the system is in some way rigged? Yeah, it's pretty typical human behavior for people to try to make sure the rules work to their benefit. That's why the U.S. is based on the idea of a robust legal system and constraints on the excesses of anybody, especially concentrated wealth. And yet we're at this moment where concentrated wealth has become begun to turn into concentrated power, more than begun. Uh, it's well underway. The thing that makes capitalism capitalism is competition. But as you have more and more uh, corporate agglomerations of power, you're going to see less and less competition. But is that the reason why you think we have expanding income inequality? Well, I think it's a vicious cycle. The economy is not some creature that just lumbers along on its own. Uh, it's an interaction between private sector and public sector. And public sector policies, for basically as long as I've been alive, uh, have been skewed in a direction that's increasing inequality. You know, a lot of this is the consequence of what you might call a Reagan consensus. There was a period where even Democrats seemed to operate in this framework that assumed that the only thing you'd ever do a tax is cut it, 
that uh, those tax cuts were assumed to pay for themselves. And the empirical collapse of that supply-side consensus, uh, I think, is one of the defining moments of, of, of this period that we're living through. But why do you ascribe it to the Reagan consensus as opposed to technological change, globalization, movement of capital? Well, all of these forces interact, but none of these forces automatically have to make our society more unequal. I mean, if anything, globalization was, to was supposed to create more equality among nations, certainly, uh, and more opportunity. Well, it actually for has the created countries. more equality in the world. Take millions of people sure, out of poverty. Sure, I mean, it's lifted so many out of poverty. But and by the way, there are ways that it can work for us at home too. But again, we're seeing a concentration of wealth and power that skews things in the opposite direction. The, the, the fundamental truth is, it turns out a rising tide does not lift all boats, not on its own, especially if some of the boats are sort of tethered to the ocean floor. And that's the, the kind of pattern that we've been on. So how do you fix what's wrong without slowing down or harming what's right? Well, first of all, we got to define what success looks like. Is success just the number, the GDP? Or is success that more Americans are prospering? When you have that definition, it tells you that uh, you, you have to rate these kind of exchanges between distribution and growth uh, a little more evenly. It's so there's an efficiency, equity trade-off, and you're willing to make it? There may be, yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's great to say that, uh, you know, it, it's all win-wins. And to some extent it is. I actually think a, an economy that's more equitable also tends to grow better. But if there's a win-lose equation, we shouldn't shy away from that. We shouldn't pretend uh, that all of this stuff can be done, that you can make everybody better off while making some, uh, while making nobody worse. Right. The reality is there are some people who are not paying their share. There are some corporations that are not contributing the way that they should. Until we recalibrate that, until we invest in things like education and infrastructure and health, investments that do in fact pay for themselves overall, but some people may have to pay more than others because some people frankly are getting a bit of a free ride on the productive energy of this country and this economy. That's going to take real choice. Now one thing that surprised me that you said in an interview the other day was that uh, first of all uh, political change comes first. That is the set of issues, Supreme Court, filibuster, electoral college, because that is necessary mm -hmm. to achieve policy changes that you need. But when you identified the most important policy change, it was climate, not the economy. Explain why that's the priority. Because I think climate is the biggest economic issue of our time, too. Look, what kind of economy are we going to have if uh, cities are becoming less and less inhabitable, if we're experiencing crop failures and heightened natural disasters? The problem with climate is it wrecks our chance at economic security as well as physical security. And one reason you see traditionally conservative sectors, like the military and like the business community, way ahead of, for example, conservative politicians mm -hmm. in this country on the issue of climate, is that the market, too, is beginning to recognize the stakes of failing to act and simply accepting what will eventually will be trillions of dollars in damage. It's not the planet as an abstraction that's going to be harmed. It's people. It's us. It's our economies. It's our societies. It's our communities. That's why this is such an urgent issue. You think we need to raise a lot of more money for the government. What, what are the things that you that strike you as the most achievable and desirable. We certainly need to consider a higher marginal tax rate for top income earners. Maybe it doesn't have to be as high as it was historically, but we should at least admit that when it was higher, the American economy was growing pretty well. Uh, we should consider a wealth tax. I think it makes sense. I think uh, one of the uh, things that's appealing about it is uh, it's not very distortionary compared to an income tax, and that's important. The least distortionary tax probably is the estate tax, because you're dead. So uh, another thing we should think about is turning to uh, a more equitable 
affordable use of the estate tax for the biggest and wealthiest estates. And I'm interested also if we can find the right way to implement it, and the devil's in the details, on a financial transactions tax, because you see preposterous levels of wealth sometimes being created uh, around these millisecond differences in financial transactions that nobody can explain to us whether it adds any actual real value to the economy. Even McKinsey can't Even explain McKinsey, whether that adds real value? As far as I know. Um, look, the downside of any tax is it can disincentivize economic activity. So let's start by taxing the economic activity whose value is hardest to prove. Warren's wealth tax would raise something on the order of 2.7 trillion over 10 years. Is that the order of magnitude you're talking about? Probably. I mean, look, we had something on the order of a trillion dollars robbed from the Treasury through the Trump tax cuts on the wealthiest. Uh, so even just getting us closer to being able to cover the deficit with the, the services Americans count on today is going to take us filling in a gap of that size. If we want to do more, if we want to have better infrastructure, which we absolutely need, if we want to deal with climate change, which is no longer optional, if we want to actually deliver on health care, um, if we want to continue to grow as the kind of country that can actually lead the world, then you can't get something for nothing. Can you do everything that you think needs to be done while hitting only the wealthy? Or is there no uh, rational plan for dealing with our fiscal challenges as well as our economic challenges that doesn't also hit the middle class? If we're going to collect revenue from the middle class, then we have to be certain that it is going to be reinvested and returned to the middle class in a way that makes us in the middle class better off. So as a middle class taxpayer, I don't mind paying a certain amount in if it's going to come back to me in the form of health care, if it's going to come back to me in the form of education for my kids, if it's going to come back to me in the form of a better road to get me to my job. How powerful a racial consideration when you think about the scale of things that need to be done for the entire country? So we know that if we target inequality in this country, much of which arose not by accident but by deliberate racist policies, and that can perhaps be reversed with intentional anti-racist policies, that we're benefiting the entire society. We, we all do better when we all do better, as Senator Wellstone said. And uh, we need to consider, first of all, that it's the right thing to do. Um, secondly, that this is not a favor to somebody. Mm -hmm. This is a restoration of a theft. And third, that if we get it right, uh, you don't have to be uh, somebody who is on the wrong side of a racial inequity to be better off for living in a country that did something about it. So Jamie Dimon recently put out a letter to J.P. Morgan and said the social needs of too many citizens uh, have not been met. But he also says the tax cut that was enacted in late 2017 was the irreducible minimum of what we needed to turn our economy around. What would you say to him? The big problem in this country was not that it was too difficult to be wealthy. It just isn't the big problem in our country right now. It's not what led to the uh, political instability we're seeing. It's not what's leading to diminished life expectancy or the prospect that my generation is going to be the first in history to be worse off economically than our parents. But what we could have done especially if we were going to create a trillion dollar deficit, is make the kinds of investments in infrastructure and education and health uh, that would have made this whole country better off. I also think that um, no matter how educated or intelligent some of the people working in these industries are, um, I fear that they can quickly get out of touch with the reality on the ground. Uh, if you don't understand just how much anger there is in, for example, my part of the industrial Midwest, uh, where it can be used in a, in a very cynical political way um, to direct it against immigrants or trade writ large, 
uh, or against your fellow American, uh, or even against Democrats, uh, just because folks are mad yeah. and it's got to go somewhere. Uh, you're going to continue to see these destabilizing political outcomes like what we're living through right now. Others who say that the th kinds of things you're talking about would be destructive of capitalism, that it's a war on the wealthy, that it would bring socialism to the United States. What, how, do, how do you respond to arguments like that? You know, the, the crazy thing about arguments like that is how uncoupled they are from evidence. We're not to speculate on what happens in a Western society that delivers health care to everybody or that has more social mobility or that invests at a higher rate in infrastructure or education. We know exactly what happens, and what happens is you're better off. The American dream is slipping away. You're much more likely to experience that if you're a kid in Denmark right now than if you're in America. And while people can think up all kinds of excuses uh, why something that worked in other societies hasn't worked here, the reality is uh, when we've tried it here in our own history, it's also served us pretty well. When it comes to cultural conservatives, you have said that progressives need to be mindful of the distance they have to travel yep. and sensitive to that. Do you think progressives also need to be mindful of the distance that some in business mm -hmm. uh, have to travel when they think, hey, they're coming after me? I think a lot of this is tonal. Look, the one thing I learned in the business community and even more uh, as a mayor engaging the business community is that while we like to think of business as the most numbers-driven uh, kind of discipline in America, in my experience, it's one of the most emotional. And so what's really important is that people not feel that they're being attacked. Uh, and, or, or at least that they understand that if we're attacking a certain way of doing things or a certain system, um, that uh, this is not motivated by uh, just angsty hatred. It's being motivated by serious and legitimate concerns about where we're headed. We have seen in the last 10, 15 years astonishing change in terms of cultural attitudes on issues like same-sex marriage. Do you have any degree of expectation that we're going to see very fast change of opinion on things like economic issues? I think there is a tectonic change in economic policy and you can see it by the fact that uh, the Republican Party experienced a hostile takeover on the part of a uh, basically economic populist. This is not just another uh, four-year cycle. This is not just another election. And I don't just mean because of the character or personality of the president. I believe we're living through one of those moments, just as when the New Deal consensus gave way to the Reagan consensus. Mm -hmm. We're living through the end of a 30 or 40 year era that defined American politics and helps to explain how Democrats as well as Republicans behaved in office. And we're at the dawn of a new one. We've got to make sure we have an account of economic change as well as social and political structures to handle that change especially in the new machine age with automation mm -hmm. transforming our relationship to the workforce. We've got to have answers on that that go a lot further than just saying that the current guy's rotten and we ought to vote him out. Yeah. When Barack Obama ran in 2008 to be the first African-American president, he chose uh, not to emphasize that fact because he thought it would be counterproductive. Other people celebrated that. He did not emphasize that. Are you going to uh, approach this race with the same attitude about potentially becoming the first gay president? You know, when Chaston and I started dating and eventually got married in South Bend, we weren't exactly sure how the idea of uh, uh, the first ever uh, male first, first gentleman, let alone uh, same-sex one, would be received in town. And pretty quickly we just hit on the idea of uh, treating, expecting to be treated like any other couple. We'd act like any other couple and we hope people would treat us that way. And for the most part, that's what people did. Uh, look, being gay is part of who I am, and it's part of my story, and it has shaped me in some important ways. It's also just part of my story. It's not all of who I am. And, uh, you know, what I hope to do is 
uh, you know, turn to that story if it helps people understand how I might be able to relate to others with radically different experiences, but certain things in common. Um, but I'm not running to be president for any one group. If I thought of myself just in terms of identity lanes, uh, it'd be a pretty lonely place because I'm the only Maltese American Episcopalian gay veteran that I know. Um, if we get identity right, then it can actually be a source of solidarity with people whose identity is completely different. Uh, I think divisive identity politics is exactly what's being practiced by the White House today. And it's using race to divide us uh, within, for example, the middle and working class. And uh, we've got to turn the page from that. Last question is on the question of scale. You're 37 years old, you're the mayor of a small town, would be a very large jump to become president. It's a large jump for anybody to become president. I understand your experience argument, but is there something about the fact that you were elected with 10,000 votes as mayor that makes you less inherently prepared than, say, Mike Pence, who got a million votes to get elected governor of Indiana? Does the difference in scale become a difference in kind? Look, uh, the office of the presidency ought to humble anyone. Its demands uh, are such that I don't think anyone who hasn't already held it can actually fathom. Uh, what it is like to be there. And so there's something very audacious about anybody looking at that office and thinking they belong there. But we all, uh, we all look at this office with a certain level of experience that we have. And in many ways, I actually think it's precisely because my community, the one I serve, is not one of the biggest cities, uh, that uh, I think I have a better sense of what it's like to be from the kinds of communities that have felt left out uh, in our country and in some ways have lost touch with my party. Uh, places, whether they be rural or industrial, that uh, have that, that common quality of young people growing up with that message that success means you have to get out. Thankfully for me, I realized that success actually meant going home. And I think it's a powerful antidote to the message that this president is preaching, that, that the only way to our hearts in a country, in a part of the country like ours, is uh, through resentment, through promises that can't be kept, to turn the clock back to a past that was never as great as advertised anyway. I think there's a lot of power in that. and so. I think it's precisely because of the kind of community that I serve that I represent a different kind of voice, uh, preaching perhaps similar values to many of my Democratic competitors, but doing it with a different vocabulary. And I treat that as an asset, a feature, not a bug, of this whole project. Well, that's it for this edition of Speakeasy. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Speakeasy is produced by Pat Anastasi and M.C. Wellens. Editing by Sherry Rosen and Jeff Dills. And by the way, please leave us your feedback in the comments section. We want to hear from you. Talk soon.